Up next on episode 19, Joel and Jeff discuss scaling and social effects in Stack Overflow, how to handle growth in the launch in a controlled way, and answer listener questions about backups, database design, and maintenance programming from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Let's talk about um, that thing with the thing with... Uh, uh, what did we want to talk about? Oh, voting voting on questions. It's a Stack right. Overflow ish, UI issue. Right. So, so to give context, because you know not everybody can see the site yet, you want to explain the situation? Yeah, so uh, so uh, Stack Overflow lets you. It's a Q and A site. You, people ask questions, and then other people produce answers. Sometimes other people, and uh, you can vote on the questions, and you can vote on the answers. Um, now, voting on the answers, everybody seems to have figured out. That's pretty obvious. You vote on the best answer, and that seems to be like already working. Like even on a obscure question with only three votes total, the the good answer has the more votes and the bad answer has you know negative votes and it uh, the the idea of what what a good answer is <clears throat> uh, and what a correct answer is uh, seems to be pretty canonical but but how do you vote on questions like what what's what should be the rule for for how to vote a, whether when to vote a question up right well i i agree there's some sort of confusion around the feature and one thing people have proposed that i don't entirely agree with is they've said that votes on the questions should simply propagate up to the to the votes on the answers should propagate up to the questions. Oh. So every time you vote on an answer, every time you vote it up, that votes the question up, and every time you vote the an- the answer down, that votes the question down as well. That um that might work. No, I will tell you when that doesn't work. Uh, that doesn't work when when there's a question you're like, God, yes, I'd really like to know the answer to this, so I'm gonna vote it up because this is a good question. I'd love to know why this is. But there's no answer right. there, so you want to be able to. to right. Well, the real question is, what is uh, you know? I was thinking about this a little last weekend, and I was thinking, what is the the effect of, of voting on those questions? Where where does it show up? Well, um, the the main thing it's going to determine, I think, is the default homepage. And I think the the ideal ideal what we want the default homepage to do is give a random person that just arrives um, a list of interesting questions that changes frequently. So all the questions on there are interesting, uh, whatever that means, because people have said, yes, I agree that this is interesting. And they're also changing pretty frequently, so you're tempted to keep coming back. So if you're just bored sitting around on your computer and you're like, hey, I'd like to learn something new about programming, uh, you can go to Stack Overflow and see a bunch of new things. And two hours later when you're bored again, you can go back to Stack Overflow and see a bunch of new things. And the next day, it'll be all new. So there's something of like a Reddit or a ding-like homepage uh, where uh, interesting things are constantly being voted on, and that's what, what gets them on the homepage. Right. So one thing people have been clamoring for, and rightfully so, is they want 
a way to sort of keep track of what things they've looked at. And you pointed out an email to me because we were the way this all came up was we were talking about algorithms to determine what the hot items are, the items that people are most interested in right now. Mm-hmm. And one side effect of that was thinking about voting on questions and what does it mean, uh, because it has come up a number of times. And you said that maybe what we should do, rather than voting on the questions, just have like a star on the question where you sort of favorite it. And mm-hmm. then it's more like delicious, where you just said, okay, I like this question. This is an interesting question, so I'm just going to put it in my favorites, and then I can go back to it later. And one side effect of that would be you would build this you know, breadcrumb trail to the things that you're actually interested in. Now, I kind of like the system the way it is now. I, I can see where people are coming from with, with wanting this axis of just tagging things as favorites. I mm-hmm. get that. But I think voting on a question is similar to, but not exactly the same thing as, marking something as a favorite. I think it's really closely related. It's not exactly the same thing. I mean, you could see yourself voting something up that you're like, oh, I don't know anything about this. But wow, that's a really good question. You know, the person who asked this question really did a lot of research and has some interesting detail and wrote really well. And it's just a really good question, right? I can identify that even if I have no knowledge of Mm -hmm. the topic really being discussed. I say, this is a really good question. This guy clearly put time into that. That deserves a vote up. That doesn't mean it's my favorite question, right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but but I think a lot of the time it will. I think the things I tend to vote up are things that I a, understand and know about and would click on anyway, right? Like, oh, that's an interesting topic to me, so I click on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think another point of distinction here, we don't allow people to vote on things until you click through to the actual full detail. And I think that's actually a really big mental shift you have to make from things like Dig and Reddit because that's just one layer of our system. And for those guys, you're browsing a list of topics and you're just mindlessly going, click, hate, hate it, love it, love it, hate it, hate it, love it. Yeah. You know, you're just, and it's just totally not the same thing. Because in our initial, like early in the beta before we went public, we had that in. And Jared said to me, he's like, I really disagree with this. I really don't think we should be letting people vote on things this way. Until they and, at least. Pretend- yeah, until they've, yeah, what are you voting on? You're voting on the title of the article? Did you read it? Do you know? <laughs> I mean, it makes total sense. And when Jared said that, I was like, you're, you're absolutely right. We should not allow this because until you've clicked through, you don't even know enough. You're not equipped to vote, right? You, you, you know, it's like voting just blindly on you know, just a ballot, just checking boxes based on somebody's name. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of subtlety to these, these decisions. And uh, I'm not saying we're making all the right decisions, but I do understand the need to have that breadcrumb trail of stuff you've voted on. So one thing we currently are working on and will have in the next few days is a private page. Because voting is another one of those things where like we can't really tell other people what their votes are because it would just get really weird. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if people knew that you had voted their stuff down <laughs> or I had voted their stuff down, they would probably get pissed, right? Do you even do you even track that? Oh yeah, we track it all. We know I mean I don't look at it. I don't care, frankly, but Oh, yeah, we track it all. So it's not just like a – you're not just incrementing a number. No, it's, no, no. It's no, actually recording a vote as actual, a – That's right. And uh, it's funny, Jeff Dalgus, we were working on this the other day. And, we were, we're, of course, we're constantly changing all the rules and redefining everything that we're doing. And Jeff remarked in uh, the, the Skype window, he's like, man, it's like, I'm glad we don't make voting machines. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> 
it would just be a disaster, right? It's like I, our current system, because we're currently recalibrating a bunch of things. I think we're about to piss off a bunch of our audience because we're going to put in a whole bunch of additional reputation caps that they're not going to like. And I've also been clearing out a lot of the old meta Stack Overflow discussion that is A, old, and B, resulted in a lot of reputation gain for like, Topics that don't really have much to do with actual programming questions. Well, that should, um, yeah. I mean, if if the system is designed right, it shouldn't hurt to have all. I mean, the system was designed so that old things could stick around even when they weren't relevant anymore. And well, I mean, that was the reason referring to stuff in the beta, though. It's not even there. But that's the whole point. Stack Overflow is supposed to work. For like like you know this is the question that you were asked on that on that podcast what was it, what was the other podcast called hard hurting code hurting code hurting code yes heard hurting <laughs> hearing <laughs> is it a is it a sh- sh- sheep a metaphor to do with sheep well it's like hurting hurting cats right the whole hurting cats metaphor it's a pun it's punny you know hurting cats hurting code yeah okay so. <laughs> I see you do not approve, but let's proceed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. What, what were you? You were asked something about like you know the problem, and, and this was something we recognized when we built this. The problem with a lot of those websites is you go, you know, even to the official Microsoft discussion forum on some particular technology, and you ask some particular question, and you find a bunch of people talking about the the beta of three versions ago, and the information that's there is is no longer. Uh, Correct, correct or up to date. And right. what's worse is that that particular question now has like the page rank. So that's locked at the top of the Google results. You're stuck right. with this, this old rotten question that's much higher in the Google results than maybe somewhere somebody else on the internet who actually has up to date information. Just because Google tends to give uh, a lot of, uh, just the, both the way page rank works and the way Google works in general, you know, the, old, the longer something's been there, the more uh, cred it has. Uh, the, or the higher it's going to show up in the ranks. So, uh, um, so that's the reason that we built in this wiki capability. Is we wanted these questions to stay up to date. And if somebody went into question and found that it was old, they could go in and say, "Well, you know, they could at least edit it to reflect that it was no longer the case, and hopefully uh, uh, put in the, the new data." And that's what I'm kind of hoping uh, will happen. It'll certainly happen with the very canonical questions, the the ones that are um, very very commonly looked up. How do I iterate over row sets in, in C sharp? That's gonna that's gonna be that's gonna come up all the time. People are gonna always ask it. Um, people are always gonna look at the answer, and if the way that you do that changes, um, people will edit the answers. I think. So, um, given that, I agree we're, with all that. Yeah. So then, why do we need to delete old, irrelevant beta Stack Overflow questions? I think there's a little bit of a special case, like as you're launching the site, right? Because. Uh, you know, we're like desperately busy actually writing the site. So, but then also we have to participate on the site to actually see what's happening, engage the impact of the changes we're making, and make sure you know people aren't going to kill each other, and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know make sure things are working the way they're supposed to. So we sort of dip our toes in the water. Um, but I think in this early phase, we weren't providing a lot of guidance about like, well, what is this site, right? Like, I didn't have really a fact together. Of any significance, yeah. So they just had to figure it out. They had to like guess and try, and and that's great. And they were creating a whole bunch of questions about Stack Overflow. And for a long time, Stack Overflow was the second largest topic of discussion at the site. This has changed, and also I've cleaned out some of the old stuff. Yeah. Um, and you would expect that to change over time, but some of those old posts were just, you know, basically afterbirth, right? Like 
you know, <laughs> it's just not really useful. And I'm using that in a very intentional way. I do not view those as useful things. Uh, I, there, a lot of the other questions that are great questions, and even the ones I don't particularly care for sometimes, I think are too discussy. I'm not going to go in and delete them, right? I'm not going to be that guy that goes in and just deletes people's crap. But I think I have to be on some level because you just got to clean up. You know, the, the, the act of creating the site creates some unnecessary complications that you just should just remove later, like warts. <laughs> yeah. And after, if people want to create new threads on this, that's fine within a certain limit, right? Um, I'm looking at the overall ratio of questions on the site and trying to make sure that there's not too much navel gazing because I have had, I, I actually have gotten to the point where I don't like it anymore, honestly. <laughs> I think there's too much discussion of the site, like ad, almost ad nauseum. It's, um, it'll, uh, first of all, it'll settle down. But secondly, uh, you know, we'll, you'll have tools. Like you'll be, you, I, I don't think everybody's going to always look at all feeds. I think they're going to be looking at uh, – uh, oh, right. um, they're going to be looking at technologies that they care about. And they'll look at the homepage, and their homepage will inevitably have you know, one thing about Stack Overflow every day from some newbie. But uh, they'll, they'll just get voted down if it's not interesting to, to, to the – larger larger part of the audience. I mean, that's what the I saw. The voting is working. Yeah, the voting is working spectacularly. I mean, mm-hmm. I agree there's some question about, you know, how effective the question voting is, but I think even the question voting, it's it's a less strong effect, but it still works. You do it's, see it's, good questions get voted up. So one of the things that um, I like about Google is that they have this almost fanatic devotion to not to no special cases. Like, they never go in and just remove a site from the search results. They... They or, or or tweak the search results in any way. They always try to change the algorithm or do something algorithmic. And uh, it got so bad. There, there was this incident. Do you remember this incident with the search term for Jew? Vaguely. Well, it turns out that nobody uses the word Jew very much. They'll say like Jewish or Judaism or something like that. And, and actually using the word Jew uh, is uh, kind of the hallmark of an anti-Semite. And so if you search for Jew on Google for a long time until – uh, recently, it's been replaced by the Wikipedia article, but um, for the longest time, you got Jew Watch News, which is this huge uh, anti-Semitic site. Um, you get a lot of um, uh, anti-Zionism and all that kind of stuff, uh, and um, the 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 and that was just what was naturally happening, and that was not because of the world is anti-Semitic. It was just because the word is not used that way anymore. Uh, in, in you know, people always say Jewish person or something. They don't say the Jew. And, um, and so uh, Google was absolutely unwilling to tweak any of their search results, no matter how offensive um, the, the appearance was. And there was sort of a lot of conspiracy theories and, and, and paranoia among uh, Jewish groups that Google was somehow deliberately uh, being anti-Semitic or something by highlighting these uh, uh, anti-Semitic sites when you search uh, for Jew. And um, so um, what, the only th- what they finally did is... Um, created a, a web page explaining why uh, those results are the way they are. And they bought an ad on their own site uh, <laughs> explaining it. So there is an ad. If you search for Jew on Google now, you'll see an ad uh, that Google themselves has bought that explains why the search results are what they are and why they're not going to do anything about it. And uh, and so so that's something that I thought was sort of interesting is like they, they've always kind of had this um, uh, f- fanatic goal of, not doing anything, not not really special casing uh, themselves, or, or or just not being willing to have any exceptions. But thinking, well, this is a sign that there must be something wrong with the algorithm, and I'll go back and tweak the, the algorithm. So, um, you know, in that in that spirit, if we're getting a lot of discussion about Stack Overflow, um, that 
you know, maybe there's something about the algorithm you can do. Like if it's if it's highly repetitive, then um, maybe the algorithm isn't doing a good enough job of directing people to previously asked questions. Right, and I think there's two usage models here, and I think we're only really seeing one because it's a private beta, and you know the nature of the audience is very they're highly interactive and very interested. And I think you're going to have vast hordes of sort of vaguely interested people that are going to hit the site. And those are really supposed to be a big, big part of our audience, is the people looking for drive-by answers. They're looking yeah, for the beta, wins. Yeah. The beta and, does not in any way solve the people who come to the site because the, because the, the beta is invisible to Google. So our most common use case, which is going to be somebody types a question into Google and the answer happens to be on Stack Overflow, is uh, uh, not even being tested in the beta, really. So we don't have that kind of audience. That's right. And and I think sometimes people forget that that's really, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't understate the importance of people that are highly engaged with the site and want to do it. But the, the, that's kind of like, what, what is the term they use in the movies? Like, how will it play in Peoria? You know, sort of the, the mainstream audience that you're going to get is not really the same as sort of the elite, really elite developers that you have a, a, a attached now. And although people have complained about the quality of the questions and stuff, they're still, you know, you have yet to see what's going to happen when we open this up to the real world. Yeah. Uh, like the offensive flag on the last podcast we talked about, that people were confused about that. And I don't think they'll be confused at all about what it's for once we open the site up to the public. <laughs> you mean because there will be offense, truly offensive things will show up very quickly. Yes. Is yes. there a tag for Jew yet? No, we don't have that. Because <laughs> I, I personally nice. would be highly offended. Way to, way to tie those together. <laughs> so I, I want to come back to one thing I talked about, and I realize I'm meandering and I apologize. There's a lot of stuff here. Hey, that's but what we do. We, we do want to show people's vote history because I feel like there's a strong overlap between the things you voted up and sort of your your trail on the side of things that you're kind of interested in. Like people were complaining. It's like, well, if I want to – find something that I've looked at, I have to post an answer there. And then it shows up on my user page as, you know, something I've answered. But now once this private tab becomes visible, we can't show it to everybody. We can only show it to you because it actually shows your actual voting history. Um, you can use it as a trail of breadcrumbs and say, oh, these are the last 50 things I voted up. And then you can just walk the list and go back to those. So it is kind of a de facto kind of favorites. Oh, I, I see mean, there's, here there's on the relationship there. When I look at my profile page, it says zero votes. Is that where that's going to go? Or is it? Oh, you haven't I, voted on anything? Yeah, no, I vote on things all the time. Oh, well, we had, let's see. <laughs> Let me see. <laughs> okay, we still got some kinks to work out. I hadn't even noticed. No, 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 no. I actually, I, I know what happened. Um, we actually had, in the interest of full disclosure, so this, this is a site for programmers. So we have a lot of programmers actually attacking the site. And one very determined group actually did make a successful cross-site scripting attack. And they were actually able to log in as me and you, Oh, uh, fortunately. Yeah. Well, I learned a lot about this. I'm about to write a blog entry about this. <laughs> but one of the unfortunate things is there's this thing called a uh, – well, cookies. Those aren't complicated. But uh, if you can track someone's cookie, if you can basically uh, inject script into the page – that takes the cookies via JavaScript yep. and just dumps them out to another website. Yep. Then that person essentially becomes you. Yeah. Right. I mean, unless you're you have a per, even with a perfectly encrypted connection, this is absolutely possible. This is why cross-site scripting is so you know pernicious and so dangerous. 
Yeah. Um, and it actually did happen. And I'm actually kind of annoyed at those guys because I've been tolerant of their activities because usually they tell me and they warn me, but they've really been skirting the line between just sort of doing things and not telling us. Like we had to sort of see the logs and sort of figure out that this was happening. And uh, yeah, so th- there may be some uh, some penalties. So they should be, uh, they should be reporting soon. things as bugs instead of just uh, exploiting them. I mean, we're happy that our beta testers are uh, disco- discovering these things while it's still a beta. Right. But it would be well, nice. Well, I think they're showing – these particular two are just showing off. I mean, they even talking about it is bad because they want attention. And, I mean, it ultimately kind of helps the site, but, like, he, he mentioned that he actually tried to delete your account. I think the votes, in fact, did get deleted, and I apologize. That's that's our okay. bad. But this is this is the kind of thing we want to find out, you know, before we go public as well. Yeah. So, Yeah. Hey, what did you uh, so, think about? Um, what did you think about? Here's something that the people who are not paying attention to Stack Overflow can relate to. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just got an email from Barack Obama that says, "Did you see Michelle?" And I'm like, "Oh, dude, <laughs> please tell me you didn't just email your whole mailing list because you don't know where your wife is." <laughs> nice. I'm sorry, you need some email uh, training. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, where was I? Um, uh, now I lost track. What were we talking about? The beta. Well, oh, we were did, you see, the- did you see that article that Aaron, Sh- Aaron Schwartz wrote about how to um, how to go public? Like not the Hollywood big bang launch, but like a long, quiet, steadily growing. Did you see that? I don't think I've seen that. That was pretty good. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to uh, find the link. It, it showed up on uh, Hacker News. It's just uh, on Aaron Schwartz's uh, blog. Let's see. Uh, Doesn't he do politics now? Yeah, he does all kinds of stuff. Uh, Did you know his page is page rank nine? Did you know that? Nah, it's four. And um, (laughs) I'm looking at it right now. It's it's four. Okay. How uh, the the article is called "How to Launch Software," and he's sort of comparing um, the the uh, the Hollywood launch, which which is kind of what Apple does, where like it's absolute secret, and then they throw impose it on the entire world. And that's actually what Cool uh, did, and it was a disaster because uh, they just weren't ready. And uh, the opposite is sort of the quiet, like the Gmail launch, where it's invite only, and then you can send some invites to your friends, but they're very much controlling the speed at which it rolls out. And uh, um, uh, the, the benefit is, of course, that you know you get to scale gently rather than suddenly. Right. Um, and, uh, uh, the, uh, here's, uh, let me, let me tell you, I'm just going to, I'm going to read from his, his blog post, um, something quickly. Uh, what happens when software developers try the Hollywood launch, and I've seen this many times, uh, uh is that users indeed do flood your, your site on launch day, but first they bring the site down from the load. You scramble to get it back up and succeed by coding like a madman only to find that they discover some big bug that you never quite noticed before, which makes the whole thing look like embarrassing hack work. So you're desperately rushing to fix the bug before the traffic dies down, rush patching things and restarting the server. When you bring the site down for everyone because there was a syntax error in your patch that keeps the server from coming back up, you fix it while cursing yourself madly. Finally, everything seems to work. You take a breath and decide to see what other people are saying about you on the web only to discover that everybody misunderstood what your product does because your front page wasn't clear enough. Now they all think it's stupid and wonder aloud how you even know how to breathe. So you reply in all the comment threads and fix your front page to ensure that no one could possibly misunderstand what it is you're doing just in time to find that all the traffic is gone. 
So this is exactly what happened uh, to Cool, <laughs> and uh, and I've seen it actually a few times. It is kind of an interesting uh, um, point. Like if you if you get publicity and you get everybody looking at your website, kind of suddenly, all at once, uh, um, you you often get a very very large number of people who have a worse impression of you. Well, there was some conversation among the many threads of meta conversation on the site. One that I actually thought was somewhat insightful was the idea that, and and I've often thought this, is like when you have something good, you actually don't want a lot of people to know about it. I mean, the fact that sort of only the cool people know about it, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, uh, is actually kind of a plus. And, you know, having sort of the dogs of dig sort of you know run over and just sort of trash your place doesn't necessarily help things. Um, yeah. On the other hand, I'm torn because I definitely like you know tight knit communities, and I've talked about that many times on this podcast. The value of those tight knit communities. Um, but on the other hand, I, I want it to be inclusive to where anyone can participate, like the whole Wikipedia aspect to it. And I feel like how do you balance that? I mean, how do you have? I mean, I guess you could just not publicize it, which we could certainly do. I mean, I could certainly not write about it. You could not write about it. Um, it's getting plenty of traction without us ever even talking about it. Yeah. Um, um, so that's yeah. an option, I guess. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I, like you, am very, very torn because, first of all, I think that a lot of the power of this starts to kick in. There's two things where the power of Stack Overflow really starts to kick in. Number one, when Google can search it. Uh, and therefore, it starts to provide a service to people who are searching for obscure technical questions using Google, and they don't know about the site. And uh, number two, uh, when the audience reaches critical mass so that there is a reasonably large number of people who are writing classic VB6 XML code uh, and, um, or, or something just obscure and, and, and very, very niche And when you hit a critical mass with those people, all of a sudden, you know, the value goes way up instead of just having the top – the top questions, you actually start to get the kind of obscure questions uh, and get those answered. And then the value goes up dramatically because we really are, you know, it, it, there's this whole theory of the long tail. And like Wikipedia is kind of long tailish, right? There's an article on, on the comic book character, Little Dot. But even Wikipedia doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, purport to have an answer, an article about some obscure uh, technical question, how to programmatically insert RTF uh, text into a document in Word um, from a macro without um, overwriting the, the user's clipboard, for example, which is a question right. I answered yesterday. So that's so obscure and so narrow that I don't even think anybody who participates in Wikipedia would expect that there would be a Wikipedia article about that. And so we're going after an even narrower, longer sliver of the narrow long tail. And to really make that work, you need the scale and you need the mass and you need, the, you need everybody. I agree, and and I, I've had the same concerns about the Hollywood launch. Uh, for one thing, I, I honestly just don't even think it's necessary. I think the people that need to know about Stack Overflow kind of know about it, mm-hmm. and the people who should know about it will because yeah. of the whole network effect of the the thing we're doing. Um, so I, yeah, I, I I don't know. I guess maybe we can have some comments on this podcast. Uh, that'll maybe give us some advice on the directions we think we should go. One thing I don't want to do is have like an invite-based system. That was one of the ideas they floated of like, remember the early days of, of Gmail? Yeah. When you could mail like 100 people and those people could join. I think you I got like five. You got five invites. Well, you got more over time. Like they, they, uh, well, they, they, there was a knob that they turned to adjust it based on the amount of physical hardware they had and how much they could support. 
and they would just increase the number of invites. They would give everybody some more invites if they had extra hardware, and they would take them away if they if they didn't. Yes. But um, but uh, okay. Uh, well, here's the thing. The truth is, it's not really in our hands, right? Because we're going to blog about it, and we have the audience that we have, and our audience already knows about it, and a lot of them are listening to this podcast. And and they're just they're just hearing about it through our website, and they're going to find out about it. Uh, and then there's the second tier, next larger audience, which is you know Scoble already mentioned it. It's likely to get looked at by uh, you know even if we don't promote it to them by by people like um, I don't know maybe TechCrunch or or you know that kind of thing. It'll show up on TechMeme for for a minute, and uh, when it does finally launch, a lot of tech bloggers uh, will come in and look at it and mention it. And um, that's sort of a medium level of publicity. But then there's the thing which we don't re- probably don't really want to happen, which is front page New York Times. <laughs> that would probably be uh, uh, bad uh, for us early, early on because, um, that, first of all, the traffic would overwhelm us. Um, and secondly, um, you know, those people wouldn't really know what they were looking at necessarily or, 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 or how it's supposed to work. And, and we would just have this phenomenon of a million newbies running around. Uh, yeah, I think I think the worst thing that we could do at this point is for you and I both to sort of talk about it at the same time in a very public way. Um, I think that would be. But bad. we don't have that. I, I don't think that would be. I mean, our our audiences are the right are a perfectly good developer community. Uh, that they'll be fine. The trouble is, if it kind of goes broader than that for some reason, right? It goes to the program. If if it's somehow the kind of thing. If it starts out, and, and pe- people who don't really know how to use, I don't want to say don't know how to use the internet, but you know, the audience of people that read uh, Coding Horror and the ar- audience of people that read uh, Joel on Software are already fairly elite in the programmers because they're the kind of people who are trying to read things in order to better themselves as programmers. And that's already you know, 5 10% of practicing programmers. It's not the vast masses of um, Java monkeys who are formerly VB monkeys who are formerly COBOL monkeys who are just doing, you know, large swaths of extremely boring stuff internally somewhere that, ah, who have I not offended? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the Jews. You've offended the Jews for sure. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Big trouble, buddy. I'm sorry. Don't don't bother writing in. I'll just I'll just commit suicide. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I apologize Uh, in advance. So so let's talk about the schedule. So we did decide. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, so first, next week, the only showstopper that we had was the uh, deadlocks, and I actually blogged about that. It turns out for our particular, well, I would argue for most web apps, you have this load scenario, which is basically like 99% reads and 1% writes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it turns out SQL Server is kind of crappy for that kind of load scenario out of the box. Um, but they added this thing called read committed snapshot, which is that's exactly what it's designed to accommodate is those kind of loads. Is that the where, same as row, row level locking? I get so confused. There are so yeah. many different features in SQL Server, and honestly, I can't even keep track of them all. But the one thing I do know is it, every time you read about this thing called read committed snapshot, so um, that's exactly what it's designed to accommodate is to have unblocking reads most of the time, like except in extreme scenarios. Um, because the, it turns out the locking model in SQL Server out of the box is very conservative. Like, it likes to lock stuff really longer than it probably should if you don't, mm-hmm. you know, you're not, again, you don't have a bank account that you're keeping track of here. It's just like some post on our stupid website that we're creating. <laughs> um, 
So if it's out of date, that's better than this giant blaring deadlock error. <laughs> so we're basically basically what we're doing is declaring to SQL Server. I don't care if the data is slightly out of date as long as it's consistent, as yes. long as it was correct at some time. And that's if right. somebody's changing it right now, don't wait for them. I'll take the old data, please. Yes, for the most part. I mean, although you can still lock. I mean, this is not lock-free by any means. Um, this is not the lowest level is what they call the dirty reads, which is the no-lock stuff. And you know that's where you get into a slippery slope of that is kind of sketchy because you're basically disavowing all locking at that point. Uh, so we're not disavowing locking. We are in a consistent state. It just may be out of date at any, any given time. But I'm really glad that we resolved that. And i got to thank Jeff Dalgis for really going the extra mile and helping us figure that one out. Uh, but that was the only showstopper that we had. The rest of it is just pure scaling stuff, right, mm. which I, we can do. I mean, we can figure that stuff out. Um, it's not an unknown. Uh, but for the record, in terms of scaling... I am inviting more and more people in. Sort of now, I'm doing 300 people per day, trying mm-hmm. to get the load up as much as I can, and it still actually looks really good. I mean, mm-hmm. we have an eight CPU box and you know four gigs of memory, and it's humming right along. I mean, we don't, we're not even really remotely close to pegging the CPU, and the caches are all working. We're not missing any major indexes. I just ran the uh, database engine tuning advisor mm-hmm. right before you called, and. Have you ever run that thing? It's kind of yeah, funny. Yeah, uh, uh, regularly, actually. Yeah. yeah. It, but it comes up with the craziest indexes. It's like, oh, yeah, you got to index these 10 fields and I know. these 12 fields. And, and you, can either, you can either try to figure it out or just say, okay, do it. <laughs> yeah. Run the code. Exactly. <laughs> so my strategy with that was I picked – it found one index for us that was like 19% of our workload, mm-hmm. which was really high. And the rest were like 1%, 2%. I was like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um so I created that one particular index, uh, which ironically created some deadlocks while I was creating the index, but that's <laughs> acceptable because I knew that was going to happen. Of course, then people started emailing me, your deadlocks are back. I'm like, no, 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 I was creating an index. It's okay. No need to panic. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, stuff like that. We actually have yet to implement any kind of caching on our end. In other words, every time you hit a page on Stack Overflow, you're actually querying the database every time. This is intentional. Mm-hmm. Okay, because <laughs> we're trying to optimize the normal state of the system so that in a normal page request, we're not killing the database, right? We want to mm-hmm. be as optimal as we can with no caching. Then we're going to make it even better by adding caching on top of that. Um, that's over the next few days. And have we even said the date? So we were tentatively thinking September 3rd, right, Joel? Is that what we thought? Um, what day is it? Like right after uh, Labor Day uh, weekend, yeah. Yeah, yeah Labor Day. Because we figured the, nothing's going to happen on Labor Day weekend. Yeah. I was actually thinking, yeah, the third, second and the third. Yep. And I'm comfortable with that based on the features that we have, the fact that we resolved that de- annoying deadlock issue, and my comfort level with our current level of load. Now, I, we could get load like that I so crazy that, you know, who knows? <laughs> uh, it, but we have, our ace in the hole is we're going to go back to this caching thing and actually start caching stuff, and hopefully that'll buy us some time. Um, yeah, you could also certainly add another box and move SQL Server to its own box. I'm a little worried about that, because I feel like the advantage of having SQL Server on the same box mm-hmm. is that there's no network communication time. It's like a TCP IP socket to the same machine, right? There's no... So I think by the time you... No, but I'm with, not saying um, it wouldn't help, but... Uh, it, it helps, it helps. Because with gigabit Ethernet, uh, it's faster than the hard drive speed anyway. So, but it's in memory. It's not really touching the hard drive for the most part. It's I'm saying if you have two machines that are hooked up, and one of them is SQL Server and one of them is the web server, 
and they're hooked up with a dedicated gigabit Ethernet, which all, all your good servers will have two Ethernet cards, so you can just have a single Ethernet that, card that all it's doing is letting you talk to your SQL server. And uh, the, the speed of, of, of th- that, that network connection will not be saturated until you are pumping out data faster than you are reading it from the hard drive, which is impossible. But still, there's more latency going over the network than there is going in memory on the same machine. That was my concern, was it's, the it's latency negligible. cost. They're, okay. Yeah, it's negligible. I mean, we, we, we do that everywhere, and everybody says it's worth it. Uh, okay. That, eventually, that's cool. We, but you're, we do have that because, path. That is, I mean, that don't is forget good. that because uh, yeah, what, what happens is, I mean, you have a lot of CPUs, so... Yeah. Oh, no, we have yeah. ridiculous amount of CPU power. It's absolutely not the bottleneck. Um, most of our CPU time actually is SQL Server anyway. <laughs> the other thing, I mean, there's going to be a point where you don't want to be down that that much, and you're going to want to have uh, two web front ends that you can swap in and out and just one SQL Server back end. Right. Um, that's, sort of the, that's sort of the standard, uh, you know, slightly higher tolerance system where you have a, a front end load balancer, two web servers. You can bring one down to update the code. Um and then bring the other one down to update the code, and you don't for just regular daily. Oh, I need I have new code. You don't have to bring the server down. Yeah, uh, this is going to be quite. I, I think you were right to be concerned, and I, I was also I'm also concerned that you're right. Once this goes live, there could be a really high level of load, and I could spend a lot of time not necessarily programming, but doing sysadmin type stuff, which I don't mind actually. I view that as part of the whole ecosystem of understanding. Mm-hmm. You know, if you write good code, you understand like how you're supposed to deploy that code. Yeah, all the things we just talked about are part oh, of programming. To me. It's much more fun. It's much more fun when you get to work on both things at once than just having to stick to coding or sysadmining. But um, yeah, what, what I'm really um, what, one of my fears actually is that we'll suddenly find ourselves in very reactive mode, where we spend uh, literally all of our time uh, just putting out the latest fire that's caused by the sheer size of the site, and we don't have enough time to do features that we might want to do. Right, and by your time you mean my time. <laughs> so you won't be spending any time doing that. It'll be all me. But that's okay. What do I do? I just sit here and blog, right? So it's something for me to do. That's good. But well, we, it, yeah, this is it's also so fun. Let's let's be clear. We talked about puzzles in the previous call, like how I hate the how you know how to move Mount Fuji. I think that's a total load. <laughs> yeah. No pun intended. Uh, but this kind of problem, I think, is awesome because I I love nothing more than to spend hours. Figuring out like how we should deploy our server structure, you know, figuring out this deadlock issue was even kind of fun. Even that cookie hack issue I talked about, that was actually kind of fun to figure out because yeah. we had to go through the logs, we had to figure out where they were coming from, we had to figure out where the, the where they got the script in the system. This was fun. I mean, this was like detective work. I mean, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Still annoying. They should have told us. And also, let me give you an example. I learned about. And I think I knew this. I just hadn't flipped the bit in my mind to make it significant. There's this thing called the HTTP only cookie, which we weren't doing, which was a huge, huge mistake. And I'm about to write a big blog entry on this. I like, never heard. You should of it. pretty much mark all your cookies as HTTP only, and it's enforced by modern browsers. So if somebody's running on an old browser, yeah, you're hosed, right? But if they're running on a modern browser, like Firefox 3 or IE, even IE6 actually does this. My, my, this is one of those Microsoft innovations, believe it or not. You can tag the cookie with HTTP only. JavaScript cannot get to it. It's enforced uh-huh. by the browser. Oh, yeah, it's huge. It would have totally protected us in this case if we had had the foresight to have this set. No, but I mean, it's, wait. Okay, JavaScript can't get to it. But, oh, I see. I see. Yeah, because it's the script that's actually doing all the work that's running Got in their it. browser. It's not like you're you know, there with a sniffer. 
you know, it's just a JavaScript. It's totally lame. It's, what's so lame about it is like it's such a lame attack, and yet it is so effective. It's just yeah. scary. Because everything depends on cookies. If you have any yeah. kind of persistent login, it's just a cookie. Yeah, it's – oh, yeah. It, it, there can never be enough publicity around this, so uh, believe me, I'll be writing the blog entry. So before we get too much deeper on Stack Overflow, I feel bad we didn't get to any questions last time. Do we have any? We have a bunch of good questions uh, that have been sort of sitting here in my inbox for several weeks. So uh, let's, let's go let's to, to uh, let's go to Ryan Cox. Hi, Joel and Jeff. This is Ryan from Raleigh, North Carolina. I was wondering if you might talk about backups and disaster recovery from the context of Fog Creek as well as Stack Overflow. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Um, I can start with uh, Fog Creek. What we did, and it's really well, actually. Let me start. Let me start with mine because mine's easier. We, we're supposed to. Be, we're supposed to be doing backups. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so you're saying you're not doing anything right well, now? Well, actually, we are. We we actually do backup the database every night, but it's not transmitted anywhere. So, but go ahead. It's on the same hard drive with all the other. Uh, you're not even transmitting it to. Of another. course, why not? We're like Windows users. We don't know any better. Well, okay. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting that uh, that Ryan mentions this because I am a little bit in 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 Fog Creek ways, uh, way more conservative than that, and I just sort of, uh, um, you know, for years and years and years. I mean, literally, the first year we were selling fog bugs, uh, Michael said, "Why don't we just make this available on the web as like an on-demand service?" And it went through. These things went through three different names before we finally did it. First, they were called ASPs, and then they were called SAASs, and now they're called on-demands. And by the time the third name came around for the same thing, uh, we finally did it. But the reason that I kept resisting doing it is that we were a small bootstrap company, and at first, we literally could not afford a colo facility. We just had a T1 to the office, and um, actually, our public-facing web server was an old ThinkPad laptop with a broken screen. So... For servers, you don't need the screen. So I kept that on all the time, and it would get kind of hot. So I set it up on a little, um, uh, like a plastic uh, dish dish rack, like the kind of thing that you put your forks in. What are those things called? Mm-hmm. A fork holding thing, just to get some ventilation around this old laptop. And uh, that was our server. And um, uh, I, I, I just could not conch conch. I know many people have done it, but I just did not have could not with a clear conscience. Uh, sell people that as a hosted on-demand service for which I take money because I knew that if anything happened and I had no recourse, you know, even just the T1 went down or that server went down or whatever, uh, I, w- I would feel terrible and I wouldn't be able to deal with all the people calling up saying where's my where's my data. So we didn't actually go live until and 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 I became kind of more and more scared of this as time went on and so we didn't finally go live with Fogbooks on demand until we had an infrastructure with almost no single point of failure. Uh, it has single points of failure, but um, they're very rapidly going away. So um, so our current infrastructure looks like this. It's uh, what we talked about earlier, two, fr- two web front ends and a SQL back end. And that makes, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, a cluster. And we have one of those in New York and one of those in Los Angeles and separate data centers, um, actually on separate backbones. And um, the... What we do is we put uh, both of these are live at all times, and we put half of our customers on New York and half of our customers on Los Angeles, uh, and you just sort of get assigned at random. Uh, although we probably should be looking at where you're coming from and try to get you the lower latency uh, data center, but we just assign you at random. And then um, SQL Server, uh, the SQL Server instance that we have running in each of these data centers, is uh, doing 
regular backups, and it's actually shipping those backups to the other site where they're being restored and made ready for a uh, warm uh, as warm standbys. Not quite hot standbys because they won't go live right away, but they're warm in that with one command they become the, the live site. And uh, the way you do that in uh, SQL Server is pretty good about this: is uh, you do a full backup and then you ship that over, and that's large. And then you load that up. Uh, you, you know, you, you restore that backup in the other data center. And then uh, with some frequency, and I think we've, we're doing it at least every few hours, um, you do what's called a transaction log, which is sort of an incremental backup. What has changed since the last full backup or since the last any kind of backup? And you get these very small files, which only list the changes. And you ship those over, and that doesn't take any time at all because it's very small. And you uh, restore those, too, on top of it. So um, so basically, we've got a couple of things going on. One is we've got uh, regular backups happening uh, locally, and those backups are also being shipped to a whole other data center where they're, uh, where they're um, being restored and, and are almost ready to, to switch in. I think if, if we had a catastrophic failure of an entire data center, um, the trouble is it would take us a, a, at least a couple of hours to gather enough information to find out that that data center is not coming back. Uh, because if it's going to come back, you don't want to move everybody onto the other data center, because um, that's a that can be it can then be expensive to repartition them later. But if a data center actually blows up, and we know that it's not coming back, um, you know, probably within a few hours, we'd have everybody up and running on the other data center. Well, cool, and that's critical for you guys because I mean, you're doing hosted services. Yeah, and it's also mission critical data in the sense that a software to a software developer. You know their project schedules and their um, you know lists of bugs and lists of features that they want to work on. You know you can do without that for an hour or two, but after that you start to become really ineffective. Right, unless you're like me and you just keep it on your head. Yeah, very effective. Somewhere and uh, with Stack Overflow, uh, on the other hand, it's kind of an optional service. You know, if the service disappears for a day, well, you right. didn't you didn't have it last year. <laughs> you don't have it this week. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. No, I, I think there's actually an important distinction point there, which is that once customers go in and put in data, they're sort of creating their own little worlds in there, right? And to a limited extent, people are doing that on Stack Overflow, but we're talking about, like you said, like lists of bugs. Like <laughs> you're putting your, you're outsourcing part of your business to Fog Creek. Mm -hmm. There's no part of your business that's going to go into Stack Overflow. Nobody's really in the business of answering questions, uh, programming questions. So. Um, I, I think obviously it's much more critical in, in you guys' case. Uh, on the other that was a great hand, question. Uh, you would you would really hate it if um, if the entire Stack Overflow database just disappeared. Well, yeah, it would so be, be very struggling painful. to reconstruct it from the Google cache. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, um, so well, what I would do in the case of Stack Overflow, actually, if I were you, is uh, find some some storage somewhere. It can be Amazon. It can just be a. It can be well, heck, your server's not in your house, right? Well, actually, we have I have access to another hosted server at this vendor, so I can get to it by IP address. I can just copy it to the other server. No, but if it's, it's at totally the same vendor, it's in the same room. So that doesn't... I guess that's true. Nah, I don't no, do that. You're right. what, what, what I would do is set up SQL Server to do a full backup, a daily full backup, and then like hourly uh, incremental backups, and uh, take those backups and ship them to somewhere in a different city. Just, just the files. Right. Uh, that's not real yeah, hard. To Amazon, the Amazon EC is actually pretty cost-effective in terms of the storage cost per byte 
over time. That's one way to do it. Or you could even get like a simple shared hosting account or one of those big drive things. Or heck, just email it to your Gmail account. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're talking like a Windows developer. Now you're using words I can understand. Just email it to yourself. How about if I just fax it to myself? Email it to your Gmail account. Uh, Yes. Anyway, there's lots of places to store just bytes, and, and so that would be a good thing. And a very, very important thing to remember whenever you're thinking about backup, and I always forget this. I always forget this when I try to design a backup strategy, is that there are lots of things that can go wrong, but there are two that are very, very different, and you have to protect against both of them. Number one is that your data disappears, and you need to get back to the data that you had before it disappeared. And... In that case, you, what you really want is something as close as possible to a mirror of the data in a different place. And so a hard drive fails. Oh, good. I've got a mirror in another city. Um, the, the you know, you know, terrorists drove an airplane into my data center. Okay, I've got another one at home right here. And you want that to be as close to a mirror as possible. And, and for that type of backup, obviously, you want it to be as fast as possible. Like, literally, you couldn't uh, backup every minute would be, would be uh, you know, not even enough because then you, know, you lost a minute worth of data when things go down. So that's the mirroring. But the other type of thing is you, you screwed something up. You went into the database and you typed a command deleting a very important table. And you need to be able to get to how the data was in the past. And if you have a really good mirroring system, the mirror also has the table deleted and you're screwed. So you need right. to take into account both how do I get back to something that I screwed up when I screwed something up. I mean, I have most of my data, but I need to I need to, you know, I, I did something wrong to my data set. Uh, mm-hmm. Combined with, what do I do if my hard drive fails or my server disappears or blows up or burns down or something like that? So uh, you have to take both of them into consideration. And then there are all kinds of, you know, if you really want to get paranoid, you can go deep into what happens if I notice at some point that six weeks ago I made a fairly crucial mistake and deleted some stuff and I no longer have a backup that's old enough to go get that back. You know, so you sort of have to, there's all kinds of uh, um, much less common problems. Or, or, or what if you discover suddenly that a hacker got into your system nine weeks ago and has left, you know, who knows what they've corrupted. You can't roll back to the state of the system nine weeks ago because, uh, because you'll lose nine weeks of questions and answers. You know, That's, that would be pretty bad. Right, like somebody actually went in and deleted all your votes, which actually happened to us. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, Some I mean, situations like it's not always possible to solve those cases, obviously. Right. So one of the reasons I actually started doing the, the daily backup, in addition to being just obvious, mm-hmm. was I actually, well, I've, I've been working a lot on Stack Overflow, so like I dream about it. Like I'll, I know. it's pretty much consuming my waking life and my sleeping life. <laughs> uh, so I have these really strange dreams, and I dreamt that somebody had injected and like dropped one of our tables. And I woke up and I was just frantic. And I like ran over to the computer and I like went to the backup plan generator and yep. immediately ran a backup plan. This was like a few days into the beta, so it was like, it was just funny how, yeah. Um, so yeah, backups are backups are good. What's another? Uh, let's do another. Let's do another question. That was funny. Uh, okay, yes. yeah. Oh, this is a good one. This came up, I think, on Stack Overflow as well. Hi, Jeff and Joel. My name is Ryan. I'm a software developer from San Diego, California. In developing a database-centric application designed for hosting multiple clients, I've always felt it was better to use a single database with proper indexing to store the data for every client instead of using a separate database for each client. There are, of course, obvious exceptions to this, such as when you need to give clients direct access to their own database. Now, Joel, I've heard you mention that Fogbugs uses one database per client instead of a single database for all clients. 
why did you choose this structure? And how do you go about providing updates and enhancements to all databases efficiently? Thanks. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is uh, um, this is easy, and I'm 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 sure that the way we we did it is right because um, what's interesting is uh, when you go to some of the other on-demand vendors who will remain unnamed who have on-demand products, uh, this whole idea of having a multi-tenant DB versus a single-tenant DB is something like they're all working very hard to get to where we are, where every uh, client has their own private database, uh, and they're trying to basically. And you know that's that's taking a lot of work, and uh, we just started out with that architecture to begin with, uh, and the number of reasons uh, is uh, huge. First of all, um, you know, let's say that you have a database, like in the case of Fogbugs, you've got uh, a whole bunch of tables in there um, that are kind of top-level tables, as project, bug, bug event. Bug event's not a top-level table, um, but they're they're top-level in the sense that uh, you know they're not uh, somebody's foreign key somewhere, and. Uh, um, each of these tables would have to have that client ID column in it. So the size of your ta of your database would immediately grow dramatically because you'd have to have the client ID everywhere uh, in every single – or you'd have to you know, get it out of some kind of join somewhere uh, to find the client ID. Uh, and then once you did that, the chances that you could accidentally mistakenly write some SQL that showed uh, one user data that belonged to another user just because you forgot to check the client ID – or you, uh, you know, you forgot to filter appropriately uh, in, a, in every single case. You just constructed some SQL query wrong. Uh, is a very real risk. And if every client has their own database, there's zero risk of that happening. So the clients are much, much happier when they know that their database is completely isolated and that nothing in their database uh, is in any way intermingled with any other customer's data. Uh, uh, the next is uh, backups. Clients, uh, when you have an on-demand service, clients will often ask to be able to download backups of their data. It's their data, and they want to get to it, and they want to make sure that they've saved it with whatever precautions they think are, are, are worth doing uh, in case you go out of business or strand them in some other way. And so, um, or they may just migrate off of your service, and they want to be able to be given their data. So for us to give a customer their data, it's just a matter of issuing a back backup command to SQL Server, taking that backup file and giving it to them. Um, or actually, I think, I'm not sure if we're doing that. I mean, the other way to do it is you just detach the whole database, copy the physical file, and then reattach it. And then you have a, you have a SQL uh, file that you can give them. And uh, you don't have to go through and you know, figure out which rows belong to them and which rows belong to other people and correctly filter those out uh, and run any kind of risk like that. So um, it's just um, monumentally cleaner to do it per client. And I'm not really sure why people think that you should have everything commingled in one big database, um, what they call a multi-tenant DB. And I think that probably the reason they think that is that sounds like good data normalization techniques somehow, or that sounds like the kind of thing you do with data normalization. Um, and it really depends on the scenario. If you're giving customers their own instance of an application, uh, I think it makes much more sense for them to have their own database. If you're giving customers you know, their own account on a larger system where the data needs to interrelate somehow or, 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 or connect, uh, then, then maybe it, it makes more sense to have it combined. So for example, uh, with Fogbugs, we're giving people an entire application and it's their data and it's totally private. Um, if you had an application that was, I don't know, maybe it was like an internet calendar that lots of people on the internet could use to uh, you know, make events and stuff like that and coordinate events with each other, then in that kind of case, it might make a lot more sense to uh, to have it be a single tenanted. Do you want to add anything, Jeff? 
No, I think that's totally a question for you. I've never done it, so you're the expert. It's uh, it's it's actually kind of interesting that um, uh, you know there are whole classes of things that people don't do anymore. <laughs> it's it is actually kind of rare to run a, a software application for people. What people are doing is they're building websites a lot these days, and if they're building uh, an application, they're often building it for their corporation internally. Uh, and it's you know I'm going to do the payroll application and that's going to be internal, or I'm going to do the uh, vacation tracker application, and it's internal, and there's just one of them, uh, and that's fine. And if they're doing the and if when they're making websites for a lot of people, um, you know the, the 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 data that individual customers may have may be uh, relatively shallow. So for example, uh, uh, let's take for example. Uh, 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 what, what's an example of shallow data? TripIt. TripIt.com is a website where you forward them emails of all your itineraries of where you're going on your trip, those confirmation emails that you get from airlines and hotels and car rentals and stuff. And you just forward those to TripIt, and they figure out where they're coming from. They see your email address, and they build you a nice little web page that has your whole itinerary with everything all neatly sorted out with little maps of the cities that you're going to, and it's quite cute. Um, check it out, TripIt.com. And... In the case of TripIt, they have shallow data because for every customer, they have a very small amount of data, and they have an awful lot of customers. And so it wouldn't be practical for them to create a database for uh, every customer, and it wouldn't really be necessary. The, the need for privacy and security is not there. The amount of data that each customer has is relatively small. Customers are not likely to call up TripIt and say, I would like to download my database, please. You know, it's just got three itineraries in there. What exactly are you downloading? And uh, in something like TripIt, the need for customers for data to actually intermingle is, uh, is higher. So, for example, on TripIt, I can go and say, hey, show my dad this itinerary, and then he gets a little message, and he can look at my itinerary next to his itineraries. And um, uh, that, that's the kind of thing that you need to have everybody in one database to, 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 to do elegantly. So uh, there's different, there's different u- use case scenarios, but Fogbugs really is like an application that we're hosting for an awful lot of people. And giving everybody their own database is um, uh, generally makes everybody happiest. All right, I'm going to move on to one more question here. Here's Phil Howey. Hi, Joel and Jeff. It's Phil here from Auckland, New Zealand. Got a question for you. Do you ever suffer from having to maintain legacy projects with old code that no one wants to update? And if so, how do you balance that with keeping your programmers interested and using the latest technology? Thanks. Oh, oh, oh. I think that's another question for you, actually, because we're using all the. You crazy are. You're stuff, using right? the. You got the MVC, which isn't even shipping. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And then the link. You got link. Done yeah. three five. Uh, very cutting edge. Yeah, that's it's it's fairly sexy. I mean, at least from a code perspective, what we're my using, whole career. So that won't last, yeah. of course. My whole career, except for this, has been about legacy, crap, <laughs> technology. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, we do sort of struggle struggle with that. Like Fogbugs was originally written in classic ASP, which was VBScript, and it became a very large code base. And there was never any real good motivation to to change the language it was written on. And we got to the point where we had to have our own compiler. And I've talked about that in the past. So um, honestly, people like working on compilers. No. Have you talked about that in the past? I don't I don't know if I've heard anything no? about it's that. A I can't even keep a straight face while <laughs> saying that. Sorry. I won't go into that. Uh, um, I, I, there's a couple of things. One is I don't think legacy code is ne- necessarily boring. Sometimes it's a fun little puzzle, especially if you don't have to a lot of, spend a lot of time in there. And sometimes it's more fun to just dive into some like horrible, horrible code base and try to figure out how you can 
breathe some life into it or make some small change without getting burned. Um, and, you know, that may be kind of a fun project. On the other hand, I think that if you had uh, a ma- well, well, wait, wait, wait. Let me let me interrupt you just one second there. So I think there's there's two classes of really yeah. horrible code. There's horrible code by good yeah. programmers, and then there's horrible code by horrible programmers. And these two things are very, very different. So you mean, I mean when you say horrible, like, horrible code by good programmers, you mean good programmers working in some like ancient Phoebe script type? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Like uh, there's just a huge range. I, 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 the the reason I say this because when you say, oh, we have some horrible legacy code, I'm kind of doubting at Fog Creek with the kind of programmers yeah. you hire, you're ever really going to have horrible code no. to the point that it so is. Maybe it's very it clean. Is it's very clean. Yeah, it's conceivable that I could go into your code, say, okay, it's in Wasabi or some crazy thing I don't understand, but like, wow, they actually thought about what they were doing. Because when you look at a lot of the old code that's really bad, it's like programmers who just weren't thinking about what they were doing, like, at all. Like, you can't even, like, what was going through their minds? Like, have you seen that that famous picture, well, famous now, on the internet, where it's, like, two pictures of a door for a code review? It's, like, the good code review. It's, like, WTF, WTF, WTF. And then the bad code review, it's, like, 50,000 yeah. WTFs, right? So even the good yeah. code is bad, is my point. And there's these huge degrees of bad, like, so... I, I think it's Great. conceivable, like, what you're saying is true, that at Fog Creek, you could have legacy code that would be reasonable to work there's but i think you have to realize there's those there's sort of yeah so it's sort of like is the code yeah the the first question is is the code like bad or good secondly is the technology legacy or not legacy you know is it like an old technology that's just not interesting to work on or that's very restrictive or very very painful uh and then there's also like is this code that lives i mean is this your business like like i think a lot of developers would not want to go work for a company that pretty much sold a product that was written in VB6 and it had no plans to port. And that's all you're going to be doing all day is working on VB6 code for the rest of your life because that's what their main product is written in and they're never going to port it. And, uh, and, and that, is, that, that is hard to get people uh, interested in doing. Now, there's a difference between that and like we have this old VB6 app. It's working fine. Nobody's ever opened it up. But now we need to change something about the sales tax rules because some law was passed. Can you go in there and make that one tweak? And so those, that, that can be kind of fun. Um, but if you're really bogged down in some kind of old technology, um, uh, we aren't, by the way. I mean, we just wound up taking over the compiler so that we could make the compiler be a compiler that we wanted to work with instead of a compiler that we were stuck with. Um, but uh, uh, not, not everything's like that. And I know certainly a lot of places, you know, what the investment, a lot of the top uh, investment banks in New York are kind of famous for hiring programmers. And they've got a lot of legacy code and a lot of boring code, and it's not a great working environment in terms of uh, you know the how well programmers are treated. And um, there's all kinds of things that are wrong with wanting to be there as a programmer. But on the other hand, these investment bankers have a lot of money, and they want really really good programmers who went to Harvard. So um, what they what they end up doing is giving their programmers relatively free reign to mess around with new technologies sometimes. And it's not uncommon to see these big investment banks. You, you, you talk to a programmer at, uh, this has happened to me so many times now. You talk, you're talking to a random programmer. Oh, where do you work? Um, I don't know, uh, Lehman Brothers. Okay, what you working on? Well, I'm on this team. This isn't, I'm, the names have been changed to protect the guilty. I'm working on this team and 
you know, we just, uh, you know, we've got all this uh, legacy Linux code, and we finally decided to port it all to uh, .NET, to the latest version of .NET and C Sharp 3.5, and my boss wants to do something with F Sharp, and so we're on this major two-year project to rewrite everything in this whole new platform. And they're all very excited about that, and I don't want to tell them that that whole Linux thing was a major rewrite from the previous version, which is all in, you know, let's say, uh, ASP.net, or original ASP VBScript or something, which in itself was a huge rewrite of some system that was in Java, which in itself was a huge rewrite of a Windows app written in C++ with the user interface created using Visual Basic, which in itself was a rewrite of some Excel macros, which itself was, well, that was when the business was invented. So every two years, some new boss comes along, and they just decide to rewrite the whole thing in some whole new language. And this costs a great deal of money, and it's just not worth it, and it's just a complete waste of time. But uh, these investment banks are willing to make this investment in letting people screw around with the fun new technologies because it's the only way they can hire the programmers of the caliber that they want. So you're saying there's a balance there. It's like if you're going to ask programmers to do janitorial work, Give them something yeah. else, kind of like maybe the Google, sort of like the mythical Google twenty percent of, okay, you have to work on this really boring ad platform that we have, yeah. and then the other twenty percent of the time. Or, yeah, but nobody's going to tell you that you can't have a big project to port everything to C sharp. The other thing you see at these investment banks all the time is that they'll constantly, in, in any one of these investment banks, somewhere you can find all the elite programmers working on some kind of an infrastructure project that has nothing to do with finance. It's just pure software engineering. So it might be the universal login architecture. It might be the universal data transfer architecture. It might be the universal risk management architecture. It's some kind of thing that you can buy off the shelf. There's probably an API for it in Windows if you just look hard enough, uh, or, or an app you can buy. But you're, you're writing your own because that's what's interesting to the top programmers. And they have somehow convinced the business people that that's just the way it has to get done. And, uh, and, uh, and it's fun. So, you know, they may have, you know, the... The mediocre people get stuck working on some kind of legacy code, but all the uh, top people find some way to write a universal login system with uh, um, that never ends up shipping that they spend two years on, uh, written in uh, I don't know Haskell or F Sharp or Iron Python or some you know something fun and cool. Oh come on, Ruby! Uh, I haven't seen Ruby yet, but it's going to start showing up there. It's it's uh, it'll start showing up in, in investment banks. It, it, it's, it's not their it's not their uh, their flavor. Right. You you bring up a good point because on previous podcasts people were asking, well, why did Jared and Jeff work for you for slave wages on Stack Overflow? And it truly, it's like not slave even wages. slave wages, right? It's like you couldn't couldn't even survive on what <laughs> I pay them. And I think yeah. the reason one of the reasons they want to do it is one because they know me personally. There's a personal relationship there. Um, hopefully a good one. And second, because this is a really cool yeah. thing we're building, right? Like I, I love building this thing, and they love it too. So this is their 20% project. They have full-time mm-hmm. jobs, right? I mean, they have very flexible schedules. Um, but this is their 20% project. Yeah, basically. and then, you know what? They're going to, uh, three years from now, they're going to be famous. Not that that matters. Possibly. I mean, it's even if they're not famous, it's it's like you said, this is the biggest system we've yeah. ever worked on. Easily, right? Who, how many people is this system going to touch versus anything else any one of us on this project yeah. has worked on? So from that perspective, it's, it's, it it's exciting, you know? So uh, it, no, It's yeah. just really awesome to just bump into people that use your products. That was one of the best things about when I worked on Excel. 
Yeah, I don't mean famous. It's like you tell people you were on Excel in the early days. It wasn't even such early days. I worked on Excel 4 and Excel 5. But um, they're like, oh, Excel. I use it every day. I love Excel. Yeah. No, it's cool. Believe me, it's definitely cool. And we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. It's like, to me as a programmer, the biggest compliment you can get is for people to use your stuff, man. I mean, that's the whole reason we do this. So if you can position yourself, that's like, well, why do people take a job at Microsoft? It's like, well... There's a lot of reasons to take jobs in a lot of different places, but at Microsoft, you could potentially work on something that a lot of people would get That's affected right. by. Like if you wrote some stupid bit of code, how many? What about the guy who wrote Notepad? Okay, Notepad sucks, <laughs> right? Nobody, you know, will argue this. But like, how many people use Notepad all the time? I think no- Notepad is just right. one of those edit controls. And then lately, they had to add like sixty thousand lines of character encoding logic to it. Right. But uh, that was very reason to make it super unique. Or like, what about the guy who wrote uh, Minesweeper with this crazy little cheat? I wonder if that's West Cherry. He wrote West. No, West Cherry wrote Solitaire. Yeah, Solitaire. Yeah, I, I think I saw an article on the Minesweeper guy, but you can be really famous for writing this stuff if you get in the right There's place. There's also, you know, what I hate to say some, this. Um, that, that, that's, that's definitely a good reason to work at Microsoft if it's the right team. On the other hand, sometimes I'm trying to use some feature somewhere in some Microsoft product. And it's just not working, and I'm searching for it on the internet, and I realize that nobody else in the world uses this feature, because if they did, they would be talking about this, <laughs> whatever this horrible bug is. We're way over time, and uh, so if any of you know how to publish Outlook uh, 2007 calendars from public folders in a reasonable way, that's what I'm talking about. This is obviously a feature that nobody has ever used, because um, yes. it doesn't even work. And there's nobody complaining that it doesn't work on the internet. That's the real problem. It's a real sign that nobody's using uh, using it. Uh, uh, any announcements? Anything else you want to close close with for the- No, just September third is the plan date to launch. I think. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I know you've got things on your on your list, but I I, I know we'll be ready. Um, the only thing I don't know about is what's going to happen when when the world hits us. I'll try to write something on Joel and software. Uh, Jeff and you should too. I hope on coding horror explaining how we think at least the site is kind of supposed to work. So that some of the hordes that hit it on the first day will have something they could possibly read if they were at all interested and find out a little bit right. about how it's kind of supposed to maybe work. Right. And uh, we don't have a bunch of newbies hitting the site and doing the wrong thing. Right. So final notes. I'll, I'll do the final tail out. Uh, so if, if you want to submit a question for us to answer on the next podcast... Uh, do an audio recording, 90 seconds or less, and mail it to podcast at stackoverflow.com. Also, we have a wiki where we have a transcription of these podcasts, and I'll make the same offer I always do. If you're desperate to get into the Stack Overflow beta, we have a huge waiting list, actually. <laughs> but if you do a little bit of transcription on the wiki, I will bump you, and you'll get in early, and you can get actually your beta badge uh, for being a beta tester as long as you post one question and one answer on the system. And then beyond that, see you guys next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. 
The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.